0: Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to this day in history class where we dust off a little piece of history every day. The day was March 22nd, 1916, After Yuan Shikai was declared the first official president of the Republic of China in 1912, he had attempted to bring back Confucianism and reinstate the imperial monarchy. But people across China and outside of the country opposed the restoration of the monarchy, and on this day, Yuan abdicated the throne and China once again had a Republican form of government. Yuan's death soon after, in June 1916, created a China with a weak government and divided army, ushering in the warlord era. Early on, Yuan served in the Qin Brigade of the Anhui Army, which was sent to Korea in 1882 to prevent a Japanese coup. At the time, Korea had come out of its self-imposed isolation and was targeted by the Japanese and other foreign interests. Yuan served for a decade in Korea, rising to the position of Chinese commissioner in Seoul until the first Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1894 and he returned to Beijing. After Japan emerged victorious in the Sino-Japanese War in 1895, Yuan was put in charge of training a new army. In 1898, when the Guangxu Emperor attempted to institute a series of progressive reforms, Empress Dowager Qi wrested power from the emperor with the help of conservative military leaders. Yuan and Xiexi then formed an alliance, and his political power grew. He was appointed governor of Shandong province in 1899, and at the turn of the century, he used his new army to suppress the Boxer Rebellion, and his division was the only part of China's army that survived the rebellion. From there, he kept gaining influence. He became the viceroy of Zhili, the region around Beijing, and he was appointed the minister of Beiyang and the commissioner of the Army Reorganization Council. Yuan even played a role in political reforms late in the Qing dynasty, like creating the ministries of education and police. Shi Shi was firm in her support of Yuan and Yuan was even more powerful than her because of his role in government and military command. So his opponents in the Qing court began to worry that he would lead a military coup. When Su Xi and Guangxu died only a day apart in 1908, Yuan was ordered to retire from his offices and sent home to Henan province under the guise that he had to treat a foot ailment. But he didn't stay away for long, When the Xinhai Revolution broke out in October 1911, the Qin court begged him to come back, but he refused, saying his foot ailment was still a problem. That was sarcasm, if you didn't catch it. Anyway, Yuan eventually accepted, and he became prime minister in November, as well as commander-in-chief of all the armies in North China that were fighting against the revolutionists. By December, he had forced leaders of the revolution to negotiate, during the negotiations, revolution leader Sun Yat-sen was elected president of the provisional government of the Chinese Republic. But the revolutionaries were in a weak position militarily, so they compromised with Yuan. Yuan got Empress Dowager Longyu to abdicate the throne on behalf of her child emperor's son, Pu Yi. In return, Sun Yat-sen resigned as provisional president and Yuan took the oath of office as Provisional President of the Republic on March 10, 1912. But Yuan only took the position to consolidate his power. He wasn't particularly interested in a democratic government. Needless to say, the Republic had a rocky start. The treasury was empty, provinces were controlled by warlords, and there still was no permanent constitution. Using foreign loans, Yuan expanded his army and bought politicians. The Nationalist Party, or Kuomintang, opposed Yuan and his camp. When the chairman of the party was murdered in March of 1913, all signs of guilt pointed to Yuan's government. In 1913, Parliament, under force, elected Yuan president. The new president soon dissolved the Kuomintang, arrested its members, and dissolved Parliament. Soon, Yuen named himself president for life and gave himself the right to appoint his successor. As a part of their expansion efforts, Japan attempted to take advantage of Yuan's unstable rule in China with a list of 21 demands, which would basically make China a Japanese protectorate. In order to avoid war, Yuan accepted a revised version of the demands. People protested and boycotted Japanese goods, and Yuan lost credibility. But Yuan took advantage of the anger around the demands to convince people that the monarchy and his position as emperor needed to be reinstated for stability. In 1915, he announced that he would soon be emperor under the title Hongxian. Yuan was ruling through provincial military governors. But military governors and provinces began to revolt in opposition to the monarchy with support from the Japanese. The press, Yuan's advisors, and even his armies rallied against him. Yuan gave in and revoked monarchism on March 22, 1916, though he also said he would resume his presidency. Yuan died three months later of uremia, while China was still fighting for his resignation as president. Over the next decade, China would be plagued by warlordism and a weak central government. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you feel like correcting my pronunciation or my accent on anything that I've said in the show, feel free to leave a very kind comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow. Hey y'all, it's Eves again. Welcome to this day in history class. Today I'm joined by Annie Reese. Hi. And Samantha McFay. Hey y'all. <laughs> of Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. Very excited. I'm excited. Y'all are here, too. And if you listen to Stuff Mom Never Told You, which if you don't already, you should, you've probably heard me over there talking about female first. our women in history who did amazing things, and were the first to do those things. So I'm super excited to be joined by them for this episode about Anne Hutchinson. And they will kick it off and let us know about what happened today.
1: Yes. <laughs> so on this day in history... Anne Hutchinson is who we're talking about. I'm really excited. Was banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony and excommunicated. She's considered by some as one of America's first feminists after she rejected acceptable gender roles and challenged male authority by preaching to both men and women as a spiritual leader in Massachusetts. So right up our alley. Here we go. But
2: okay, let's step back a bit because that's a lot. So Hutchinson was born in England in 1591 to Francis Marbury and Bridget Dryden. She was raised. Is in Lincolnshire, and as she grew up, her father, who was a dissident priest, taught her scripture and also taught her to question the teachings of the Church of England, while her mother taught her about herbal medicines. And it was not common at this time to get a formal education as a woman. She didn't get one. But she did read pretty much whatever she could get her hands on. And she was always a thinker. One of her inspirations was a local vicar named Reverend John Cotton, who is a huge player in her story. (laughs) But he eventually left her immediate sphere— And he joined a group of religious dissidents in North America where religious freedom was promised in 1633. He was outspoken in his criticism of the Protestant Church of England. And because of that, he was often suppressed. So to get away from all of that, he made the journey to the... New World. Okay. Yes.
1: (laughs) So before we get a little more into that, just a little more history on Anne Hutchinson. She married a well-off merchant from a good family named William Hutchinson in 1612. And between 1614 and 1630, she had over a dozen kids. Yeah. She was busy. She was very busy, just Uh saying. Mm -hmm. So in 1634, her family followed Reverend Cotton and made the journey to the Massachusetts Bay Colony when Hutchinson was 43. She used her training as a midwife to find work, and through this, she met and bonded with a lot of women, and she started inviting some of them to her house to discuss Cotton's sermons. Right. Mm.
0: But... Those sound like I want to know what those meetings were like. Like, what was the environment like in those meetings? She
2: was very, very passionate, and she is what I would describe with my modern eyes as a spitfire. She had a lot of opinions, and she wanted to share those opinions, and she was really critical – of the system in place, and they started critiquing some of that Puritan belief system. In particular, Hutchinson did not agree with Puritanical beliefs around the covenant of works, which essentially was the belief that the path to salvation required following religious laws and performing good works, and thus kind of dependent on the church and clergy. Hutchinson followed instead the covenant of grace ideology, and this basically, in a nutshell, meant that salvation could be obtained through God's grace alone. And as part of this, she didn't adhere to the Puritan belief that good works were an act of God's grace. She espoused that a direct personal relationship with God was the only way to achieve salvation, which was a direct threat to the current power structure of the church.
1: Right. And not only that, they also criticized some of the power structure of the colony and of note the assumed inferiority of women compared to men when it came to God's laws. Her meetings became popular enough that word got out about them and some men began attending. Some of them were well-known in the community. Some had upwards of 80 people in attendance, and this caught the attention of local religious leaders who did not like Hutchinson's popularity nor the interpretations. They felt she was a challenge to their authority, obviously. She was basically cutting out the middlemen, and middlemen
2: is accurate. Actually (laughs) actually men. (laughs) Right, exactly. I just want to reiterate. Her meetings that were getting towards the end of like eighty followers, that was more than some churches were getting.
0: Right, I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah it was that's like eighty was number. a big number back then. Yes. Okay. In
2: particular, in this town she was in, and that's when people started when men started showing up at these meetings. Right, and then when they noticed that she was getting a better, higher attendance than some of the established churches. Right. In 1637, Hutchinson was tried for sedition. And heresy. But at the heart of the matter, she was on trial for challenging established gender roles by holding a place of authority over men at her meetings by talking while they listened to the horror. <laughs> They also accused her of breaking the fifth commandment, which is honor thy parents. In total, she faced three charges, breaking that fifth commandment, defaming authorized ministers, and improperly holding meetings in her home. The men in power were afraid her actions would inspire other women to challenge masculine authority. Even even her role model— Reverend Cotton, who she semi-followed, he turned against her. Oh, a
0: story of betrayal. I love Uh, it.
2: Yes. Uh, He labeled her meetings as, uh, quote, promiscuous and filthy, coming together of men and women without distinction of marriage. Oh, no. And your opinions fret like a gangrene and spread like a leprosy and will eat out the very bowels of religion. So that's pretty harsh. That is really specific, too. Coming from your your role model, who you started these
0: meetings kind of talking about how awesome he was. So did she influence other women?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. She definitely had a following of her own of people who completely agreed with her and thought, yeah, why are we dependent on the men to get salvation through God? Why does it have to be via what they say? Um, A lot of people had strong opinions about Hutchinson. Right. Someone at her child got right to this, saying Hutchinson had, quote, rather been a husband than a wife and a preacher than a hearer and a magistrate than a subject." Basically, she was assuming a masculine role, ok right, right. right for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> So let's talk about the trial because the entire transcript exists, which is excellent. As you know, Eve, sometimes it's hard to get these documents. Yes. So helpful. And this was an excellent example of how she was a spitfire because these men were just leveling these accusations at her. And she just always had an answer. So I know you love a good quote on this show. <laughs> I do. Okay, perfect. I love a quote. Perfect. So we thought we would do a very tame reenactment oh, yes. of a, a section of this oh. trial. Oh, okay, we're not cool. going to get up on, up
1: on the table and ready to go? Like, we're actually in trial? If the movement okay. uh, inspires you, uh, then yes, okay. you can. I'm going I'm, I'm getting into the role. Here we go.
2: Okay, perfect. <laughs> and this is from the examination of Mrs. Anne Hutchinson at the Court of Newton. So Governor Winthrop, the governor himself was a part of this. And he said, Mrs. Hutchinson, you are called here as one of those that have troubled the peace of the Commonwealth and the churches here. You are known to be a woman that hath had a great share in the promoting and divulging of those opinions that are causes of this trouble. And you have spoken diverse things as we have been informed, very prejudicial to the honor of the churches and ministers thereof. And you have maintained a meeting and an assembly in your house that hath been condemned by the general assembly as a thing not tolerable, nor comely in the sight of God, nor fitting for your sex, and notwithstanding that was cried down, you have continued the same. Therefore we have thought good to send for you to understand how things are, that if you be in an an erroneous way, we may reduce you that so that you may become a profitable member here among us. Otherwise, if you be obstinate, in your course, that then the court may take such course that you may trouble us no further. Therefore, I would entreat you to express whether you do not hold an assent in practice to those opinions and factions that have been handled in court already. That is to say, whether you do not justify Mr. Wheelwright's sermon and the petition.
1: And I'm just imagining her face just being very stoic and calm Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. her saying I am called here to answer before you, but I hear no things laid to my charge.
2: Which is an excellent comeback. Mm-hmm. He's just like, here's all the things you did wrong and she's like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear
0: anything. He took a lot of <laughs> words to say about he had like 3
2: points in a whole 19 <laughs> paragraphs to say those 3 points. And that's pretty yeah. indicative of how this trial plays right. out, a big like long-winded accusation and her being like, no, I don't <laughs> see it. Right. So she always had a comeback ready. And she did make one mistake. During the trial, Hutchinson claimed that through direct revelation, God granted her the right to interpret scriptures as she saw fit. Mm. As you might imagine, Mm -mm -mm. that did not fly. Not at all. (laughs) Um, And it fit under the charge of defaming authorized ministers. And she was excommunicated Mm. and banished as a, quote, woman not fit for our society, on March 22nd, 1638. For three months, she was imprisoned in something like house arrest when she was once again brought before her judges to ask if she had renounced her heretical beliefs. John Cotton, her mentor, said to her, let me warn you, the dishonor you have brought unto God by these unsound tenets of yours is far greater than all the honor you have brought to him, and the evil of your opinions doth outweigh all the good of your doings. Consider how many poor souls you have misled. (laughs) How many women have you convinced that they don't need to depend on men to get salvation? (laughs) Uh, What a travesty. What a travesty indeed. To this she responded, As my sin hath been opened, so I think it needful to acknowledge how I came to fall into these errors. Instead of looking upon myself, I looked at men. I spake rashly and unadvisedly. I do not allow, that is, sanction the sighting of ministers, nor of the scriptures, nor anything that is set up by God.
1: Right. So in this whole thing, she's just standing by, yes, I believe the same things, but I don't believe it in the same way.
2: Yeah, she really, it was a kind of non-apology. Right. She sort of tried to get forgiveness so they wouldn't kick her out, but at the same time didn't really back away from the core of her right. It's
0: very diplomatic of her. Yes.
2: She, exactly. She did a very diplomatic apology, and Reverend John Cotton sort of gave her this chance, said, you know, you just have to— Really apologize and say you're wrong. Right. And she looked at it and said, (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's okay. I still believe this, but you know, you're -hmm. you're doing your thing. Okay. So she and her family, along with 60 other followers, were relocated to the more liberal colony of Rhode Island, which was founded by another religious thinker banished from the Massachusetts colony, Roger Williams, who believed in total religious freedom, meaning no one church should be supported by tax dollars, and that it was wrong... (gasps) to take lands from Native Americans. What? Mm -hmm. And the ideas got him banished, because how dare he? Mm -hmm. Um, He purchased the land from a Native American tribe to found Rhode Island. The stress of this whole thing perhaps
2: attributed to a stillbirth Anne Hutchison had soon after they arrived to Rhode Island. And the rumors that she'd given birth to a, quote, monster birth, which were really awful— After her husband died in 1642, the family moved again to what is now New York. A year later in 1643, a Native American massacre, possibly provoked by the Puritans or in response to white people taking their land, claimed the lives of all the family members but one daughter in the Hutchison family. Some from Massachusetts colony viewed this as divine justice retribution from god reverend thomas weld wrote of her death quote and therefore god's hand is the more apparently seen herein to pick out this woeful woman to make her and those belonging to her an unheard of heavy
0: example of their cruelty above all others okay so she died in 1643 so there was about five years or so between the time she was excommunicated and when she died. Yes. And they held that animosity for her, like that same vehement <laughs> animosity oh, for yeah. her that whole time, oh, where yeah. they were like, I'm so glad that she died. I it, think that— it, This is retribution. Right. Yeah.
2: That might be part of the Puritan way, and I say that non-judgmentally. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. feel like a spite is a big part of yeah certain belief system.
0: Right. <laughs> it was like, what you, you got what was coming for you. Right. You
2: angered— God and all these religious men, therefore, here right. is your just desserts, your the punishment.
1: Righteous retribution. Yep. God's striking you down.
2: And Governor Wimthorpe from earlier, after her death, described her as an American Jezebel. So, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. still a grudge, mm-hmm. still some <laughs> anger, some hurt feelings, perhaps. She is sometimes referred to as the mother of the antinomian conspiracy, which took place from 1636 to 1638 at Massachusetts Bay Colony. And really, in a nutshell, was essentially this whole thing, the covenant of works, covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first and most severe theological schisms In New England. In the wake of her trial, in the wake of Anne Hutchinson's trial, to prevent any future similar incidents, the colony put all this money into training theologians and ministers, all men, of course. course. And one of the institutions born out of this was. Harvard.
0: <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes,
2: and I read an article on Harvard's blog about how
0: she's sometimes
2: seen as the mother
0: of Harvard. Oh. Does Harvard itself, the university, support that view of her as a mother, or is it just kind of like women mm. in this day and age who support her as that?
2: Well, I would love to hear from listeners from the what I ascertained from this blog post is sort of a new acceptance right. of okay. her, but previously... Mm-hmm. It was sort of the opposite as, <laughs> forget about her. Right, per-
1: pretend it didn't happen.
2: Shh. Right. So I think it's probably a pretty well-known fact, but if
1: anyone wants to write
2: in, we would love to know.
1: Right. So only, uh, I think it was three and a half centuries later. Mm-hmm. It only took three and a half centuries. They Finally, she was officially pardoned by the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Michael Dukakis. And she has a road and a river named after her in New York. Oh. So there's that. So, you know, her legacy continues. Yeah. Some kind of recognition, posthumously, <laughs> just, just but at least it while. happened.
2: It, yeah, it just it just took a minute. <laughs> but she is definitely reading about her. To me, she seems like one of the first American women. That's kind of our thing. We always said religious freedom right. and having these— like, thoughts and debates, but because she was a woman doing it at the time and was threatening this masculine authority was very much frightening, a frightening prospect. Absolutely. And we, again, we hear these stories about people making that journey and coming for this religious freedom, Mm -hmm. and I am glad that even though it might not have turned out necessarily great for her, (laughs) I'm glad that there were these people that were fighting this fight and thinking, you know what? I believe in this way, challenging the status quo. Yeah, I think it's a very relevant thing to talk about right now. Absolutely. And I I do have a TLDR version.
0: Okay, (laughs) I'm ready for it. Basically,
2: she was a woman who was a thinker that believed that salvation was only available through God, not through these man-made church structures. She directly challenged the patriarchal church's power. She preached her beliefs, gained quite a following at a time when women were meant to be quiet and subservient, and she was charged with heresy and excommunicated and vanished because of it.
0: There you go. So if oh, yes. you don't want to hear. Uh, you had to get that to the, the end <laughs> about <laughs> Anne Hutchinson, then just fast forward to this point in time. You didn't uh, want a, a reenactment, a very dramatic reenactment, reenactment of a 1630s <laughs> yes. court case. Cool. Well, Anne Hutchinson is definitely a person that I think if you don't know about. You definitely should do a lot more research because I know we spoke about it for only so many minutes. And the history of the whole antinomian controversy and Mm -hmm. Anne Hutchinson's life, herself, the colony, there are so many uh, ins and outs of that conversation that can be dug further into that I think it's definitely worthwhile digging into it. Um, if you do, thank you so much for bringing that to the table today. Um, I think that it's so important to learn about figures like her. And it allows us to broaden our perspectives of, like, what happened in history contextually at different points in time. And it also allows us to, like, I don't know, I think in a way, and it, it gives us avenues our pathways to figure out how we would like to resist in our own ways absolutely so, yeah. yeah so thank you so much for joining me today i hope that y'all come back yes <laughs> we would love to <laughs> cool um yeah that's all for today thank you thank you bye, bye. So we've reached the end of this special episode and our producers, Chandler and Alexis, force me to say it every single time. I'm Eve Jeffcoat and we all hope that you know a little bit more about history today than you did yesterday. You have been listening to Annie and Samantha of the Feminist Podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can find them on social media at Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can find their podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow. For more
1: podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.